like they're the superhero in this journey and your product is their superpower. Tell the story of how that superpower comes to be for them and how what they're able to accomplish and how they're able to kind of measure what they're able to accomplish through what your product gives to them. Welcome to the Business Ownership Podcast, brought to you by Awareness Strategies, helping you navigate the waters between entrepreneurship and ownership. Hey there, peeps. This is Michelle Nedelec, and I'm super glad that you're here with us today because I'm here with my most amazing guest, Ben. Ben, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Awesome. So give everybody the highlight of who you are and what you love to do for business. Sure. Yeah. So my name is Ben Foster. Uh, I am the co-founder and principal advisor with Prodify, and we help a whole variety of companies, mostly technology companies, to help them to really be as successful as they can by thinking about their product and really understanding what that value proposition is that they have to their customers and how to then maximize what that value is for their customers and then reap the benefits from that themselves as a business as well. Nice. So before we get into what that really means, <laughs> how did you get into this <laughs> as an industry? Sure. Well, I've been a tech guy through and through. You know, I graduated from Berkeley back in 1997. So I was in the Bay Area in the middle of the dot-com boom. I was there for the bust as well. So it wasn't <laughs> always all up and to the right, you know. Um, but I got this tremendous experience by just getting to work with some of the best technology companies really out there. And I found myself in this role of product management. And some people are very familiar with that. Some people are a little bit less familiar with it. But product management is really all about the art and science of making your product as good as it possibly can be both for your customers and for yourself as a business as well. Nice. So do you find that there's a big difference between physical products and digital products? You know, I think that there is some difference uh, in that, you know, with physical products, the process of developing is pretty different, right? You know, you go through these longer prototype phases, you try to make it work. You know, if you run into some sort of a glitch, you've got to go all the way back to manufacturing to go make it work for your customers. When it comes to digital products, a lot of times you can have a bug, you can go fix that bug in an hour, deploy it you know, back to production and your product is kind of like up to date. So really you sort of have this difference in how much investment needs to go into the refinement and the creation and the QA of those products. And as for that reason, that's why you see sort of like very different technology development techniques that are being used as opposed to what you see in more of the physical goods space. Nice. And and do you work with kind of services as well as software as a service and and other things like that? We tend to work mostly with companies that have software as their backbone. You know, usually they're selling some sort of a software product, et cetera. But what's really interesting is you see in the world of digitization, I know that because of your podcast, you're really big on this as well. The world of digitization really changes everybody's game. You know, you can't just think about how you're going to appear, you know, in the yellow pages when nobody's using yellow pages anymore, right? You know, it's it's a completely different way in which people find their business. It's a completely different way in which people evaluate the products that they're using, looking at reviews and things like that. And if you're not thinking about those types of elements, all of those are kind of like related to product in some way. If you're not thinking about those kinds of things, then you're really kind of like doing yourself a major disservice as an entrepreneur. Nice. So when it comes to software, I know the big thing was minimum viable product, get it out, push it. Is that still kind of the, the MO or are there other kind of um, indicative factors? Yeah, you know, the concept of minimum viable product is really kind of like grounded in this notion of agile development and agile development for, you know, those who are not necessarily familiar is really instead of 
going through this process of defining exactly what your product is supposed to be like and then having it take two years to produce only to realize by the time you take it to market that that's not exactly what your customers were looking for or maybe the game has changed since the time that you put it out there or maybe you had some flaws in some of your design considerations as you were trying to kind of like develop that that the better way of doing it is to put something out there that allows you to get some sort of feedback from the market. Now, maybe it's not a product that you're super proud of, right? Maybe it's not the perfect thing and you can imagine all the features that should be added into it, et cetera. But it's better to put something out there so that you can get real world feedback from it that you can continue to tinker. And that way you have some sort of like baseline statistics on how your product is being used. And once you have that, then you can say, okay, well, if I add this thing to it, am I actually seeing an incremental benefit? You know, am I seeing an increase in conversion rates? Am I seeing higher customer engagement? And if you're not seeing that, then it kind of like makes you wonder whether that new feature or anything like that is really actually all that valuable. So hence the idea of kind of establishing this minimum viable product as sort of like this initialization of getting your product out to market so that you can then refine it from there. That still tends to be the MO for a lot of the ways that companies work. But I think in some ways, there's a realization that maybe that's right for some businesses and maybe it's not right for other businesses. And, you know, I'll give you an example, right? Like Apple probably doesn't want to put a minimum viable product out there, right? Because that's going to do them a brand disservice, right? You know, they've established a, a reputation as a brand that you can trust for having the best in Aren't the they world. really in the minimum viable there, product you know? stage though? I mean, really, come on, they're in the billions. At this point, they should have a clue of what they're doing. Like, I would think that at this point, like their first phone might've been, you know, mm -hmm. hey, it's a phone. We really want to have this thing called a smartphone and we really want to have it do a ton of things, but let's start with a phone and then we'll add the clock and the alarms and all that kind of stuff. Are they really at an, um, an MVP stage? <laughs> so there are the two game. different elements to this. I mean, one of them is, is considered the fact that Apple's a multi-product company, right? So they may not be at an MVP stage for one product, but they may very well be at some sort of new product that they're in the middle of developing. And, you know, a good example of that is, you know, there's, a, there's an awareness that Apple has made investments in smart cars. Uh, Apple has made investments into home automation systems and things like that. You don't see those out there available in the Apple store because they weren't really at a stage. They, they could have been launched. And I think some other company would have launched those products at an earlier phase in order to be able to refine them. Apple would rather kind of do that stuff under the hood, if you will, to make sure that it doesn't sort of like reflect onto their brand. So, you know, that you see that with different kinds of products. And then the other thing is you see this with features as well. So yes, you know, you're on iPhone 14 at this point, right? But there are new features and capabilities that they're considering for the next version of the iPhone that even those features you can almost think of as individual products in their own right. And are they going to launch those kinds of things at a minimum viable product stage? Or are they going to make sure that that thing is like really good and ready to go? So for example, I most recently was the chief product officer at a company called Whoop, which makes this wearable device that's available for a subscription. Um, and we also had a really high quality brand that we didn't want to damage. And so we kind of like took this middle road, I would say, that was kind of like, you know, somewhere in the middle, right? Where it was probably further along than a lot of other companies would have waited to launch their product because we wanted to make sure that it was something that was really polished and ready to go. But at the same time, there were a few unknowns and we didn't know whether we should take the product in this direction or that direction. And the very best way of determining that was getting real world market validation, real world customer feedback. And you can't really do that in the lab. You gotta kind of like do that in the real world. 
Well, I only have 23,000 questions for you. So we'll. <laughs> so right. when you're well, working we, we, with. We narrowed it down. That's great. <laughs> so when you're working with somebody, what is your process for taking them through how to productize? And then we'll just kind of focus on that as the thing. Otherwise we can go anywhere. <laughs> yeah, we probably could. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think that it always goes, it always has to start by saying, what's your vision? You know, what? Why did you create this business in the first place? What's the value proposition out there that you're trying to create? And I am surprised and kind of like frustrated, to be totally honest, about how few good answers I really hear to that fundamental question. You know, the founder often has like a sense of why they founded the business, et cetera. But when I ask for their vision of where they're going to be going in the next several years, their answer has everything to do with them themselves as a company. It has everything to do with their business metrics. And I'll hear things like, you know, our, our ambition is to get to $50 million of recurring revenue, or, you know, here's what we want to accomplish. We want to have a million users, or we want to disrupt this, this particular market. And the problem is the word that's missing from every one of those explanations is the customer. What's the customer that you're going after? What's the value proposition that you're going to create for them? What's your vision for how you're going to make their world better, their lives better, right? And if you don't have it sort of like grounded in that, then in reality, what you're really doing is you're trying to kind of focus on how you're extracting your own business value from the customer value that you've already created. But what you really need to be thinking about first and foremost is how do you create more customer value so that you then have more that you can sort of like reap from that. And maybe just kind of like grab a, an analogy here that maybe helps to kind of like bring this home would be like consider agriculture or farming, right? You know, if you had this plot of land and you're growing wheat and you got a combine, you know, kind of like, you know, training the wheat, you could ask questions like, how do I get more and more sort of, you know, wheat kernels out of this? And how do I avoid the waste? And I think there's so much kind of like attention that's drawn to those types of things because they're very easy to measure. But in reality, probably the best way of getting more wheat from, you know, the, the crops that you're growing is like have better soil, right? Make sure that the crops are getting enough water. And it's those kinds of things that really kind of grow, you know, your customer value. It's, it's kind of like, you know, you start with that and then you sort of say, now, how do I get the value that I want out of that with the right pricing structure, with the right go to market plan, with the right marketing, et cetera. And I think that, you know, the, these, you know, founders who sort of say, you know, we have an ambition to disrupt this market. My response is nobody disrupts a market directly. You disrupt a market by solving a customer problem so well that the customer's expectations are forever changed and all of your competitors overnight realize that they're playing a whole new game. You're the one who's disrupted the market in that case, but it's always grounded in the customer perspective. So talk to me about kind of how the, uh, how do I set the foundation for this question up is things are changing so rapidly. They're changing exponentially. How can you build out software that you think is going to take two years when in some cases it becomes a non-viable product period um, because of other technologies that are coming into play? Yeah, sure. I mean, you, you always have to be aware of the other kinds of things that are out there. You're keeping tabs on competitors, et cetera. I will say this, though, you know, there are so many examples of companies that had plenty of competitors who had all the, the sort of like expected advantages against them. And you look at, you know, the, the newcomer who comes along, but they focus relentlessly on the customer value. I mean, you know, Netflix had to go against Blockbuster and Amazon had to go against Barnes and Noble. And we all know these stories, right, uh, that are sort of like, you know, regurgitated over and over. But even at the smaller scale, you see the same kind of thing happening, right, where an upstart company kind of like comes along. And the reason that they're successful is not necessarily 
because they were doing something that only they could do, or they had to make all kinds of predictions about the future state of the, you know, the market or the economy that they were going to be in. It's because they were just relentlessly focused on solving a customer problem in a way that they said, I'm not going to worry about the competition. And a lot of people divested from Amazon because they thought, you know, Barnes and Noble is just going to crush them whenever they choose to. But the difference is Amazon was building a better product for their customers than Barnes and Noble ever sort of like had an intent. And that was really their secret sauce. You know, I think the same kind of thing is true for a whole variety of companies that are out there. But that's the one thing that kind of like never really changes. Right. And if you look at there's a great uh, there's a great um, uh, business interview with Jeff Bezos from it was way back in the day, like maybe. 15 years ago at this point or something like that. So Amazon's obviously done really well even since. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. (laughs) Um, And, and he's, he's, he said, he recounted the story that I thought was great. He had all of his executives in a room and he said, Hey, I want to know what the strategy is like, where are we headed? What kind of new products do we need to create? What new software and, and, and technology do we need to have? And he sent everybody out and they came back like a quarter later with all of their plans. And, you know, one executive was like, Web 3.0 is going to be defined as blah, 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 blah. And here's what we need to do. And somebody else had something that was predicated on a bunch of other assumptions. And he he rejected every single one of these ideas. And he said, look, I want to have a bunch of plans that are predicated on things that I know are not going to change. In the next 100 years, customers are still going to want low prices. In the next 100 years, customers are still going to want wide selection. They're still going to want fast delivery, right? How do we go make that happen? And that didn't constrain their innovation. It was, in fact, the realization that those things are so important that led to the innovations of things like uh, the Kindle, because they said, how can we make it that we can deliver a book even faster than the fastest delivery possibly could, right? How do we make it so that we can publish a book for cheaper than the best publisher can actually you know, publish a book? And if you kind of like cut the physical element of that and you kind of like make it be digital, then you realize that that's a good strategy that's out there, right? So they, they were sort of like so focused on what customers cared about that it allowed them to be innovative. And I think a lot of people think that not considering the the stuff that's changing and that's you know that that's like new you know in the next six months and stuff like that is going to prevent them from being innovative and a lot of times the best innovation opportunities actually lie in those things that are sort of like so fundamental to human nature i love it because i think a lot of people compare blockbuster and and netflix but they don't take into account hollywood and netflix and how mm-hmm. much netflix sure. has affected hollywood until recently yeah and and I think the same thing happens in in software, but from a business perspective, if I'm going to be dealing in something that I know is is going to be changing faster and faster, is it that kind of mission critical factor that I have to get my hands on? Like the, okay, these things are never going to change. This is what we're going to focus and build around. Um, so for example, in our business, it's, I want to rock the world, shake the foundation of dependency and move people to stand on their own. That doesn't say, Hey, I'm going into podcasting or I'm going into training, it just, sure. you know, it's, but the fundamental is still going to be there. Does that still hold true for the thing that I'm going to teach that I'm going to train that I'm going to talk about and who I'm bringing in as guests, but how do you kind of narrow in on that in the world of software? Yeah, I think there's a little bit of a difference between the vision and the strategy, right? Like the vision yeah. in that case is 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 sort of grounded in what your customers care about. You know, you, you've got this this sense that businesses are sort of like underserved and that, you know, uh, entrepreneurs need more access to technology and be more aware of the kinds of like tools and things like that that they can use. Right. And uh, and that's all true. And that's probably going to still be true five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. I think we can all kind of like, you know, assume that that's going to be the case. And in fact, the faster the world moves, the more 
likely that is to be the case. Now, what the specific technology is that you might be recommending to one client or to somebody else or whatever might vary depending on what kinds of new things come around. So you've got to be aware of those changes that are taking place as they're happening. But the foundation of what problem you're trying to solve is something that's that's fairly consistent. And so I, I'd kind of like decouple the the vision of saying this is the thing that we're going to be focused on versus the strategy of how do we go about staying you know ahead of our competitors? How do we make sure that we always know what's going on in the market? How do we kind of like keep tabs on things? How do we get input and feedback back from our customers, et cetera? And so you kind of like build those as like operational uh, strengths to make sure that you can continue to fulfill that vision even in an ever-changing world. Nice. So when somebody's working with you, do you expect that they have kind of a full vision of kind of this is the software I want to create? This is kind of how I, the platforms I want to create it on? Or can they come to you with, uh, hey, I've been thinking, I see a lot of this in the industry. How do we create a product for it? It's much off, much more often the latter, not the former. So, you know, what, one of the things that, that we uh, often find with clients when we initially talk to them is they have, you know, they'll say that they have some sort of a vision and it turns into more of like a mission statement, like a one-liner or something like that. But a vision is going to be much more rich than that. And so we kind of help them to define that. We help them to detail that, you know, okay, who is your target market today? How is that target market going to change over time? What would a customer say is the critical kind of like metric that they're going to be paying attention to at the time that they want to buy the product and at the time that they decide that they want to renew using your product, you know, they want to continue to be engaged. How are they going to make those kinds of determinations? What are the ways in which they're going to find your product and so on, right? So we kind of work with them on defining what that customer journey looks like. And in fact, we actually call it a customer journey vision because we want to kind of really emphasize the fact that it's really grounded in the customer's experience in using your product. Like they're the superhero in this journey and your product is their superpower. Tell the story of how that superpower comes to be for them and how what they're able to accomplish and how they're able to kind of measure what they're able to accomplish through what your product gives to them. And I think this is particularly easy in a B2B setting. It's a little bit harder sometimes to define that kind of stuff in B2C. Like, you know, what's the value proposition of Netflix as opposed to, you know, some sort of DVD rental back in the day or Amazon versus eBay or anything like that, right? It gets like a little bit uh, unwieldy and, and hard to define sometimes. Um, but th there are absolutely answers that are there. So a lot of times that's the first step is making sure that there's clarity on that because sometimes I even hear good answers from an entrepreneur, from a founder. And then I go other, ask other members of the team the same question. Tell me what that vision is. And they're like blank stares. They say something that's completely opposite of what the founder said. And my line is like, look, your vision is only as good. You know, your vision and your strategy is only as good as it can be repeated back to you. So a lot of this comes down to how do you communicate this across the rest of your company? How do you use that to drive decisions so that you feel confident as an entrepreneur pushing decisions down in your organization as it continues to scale so that you don't have to be the one-stop shop where all the decisions have to go through, but you can instead empower the members of your team to make better decisions on their own because they themselves would be able to repeat back to you the same kind of like vision, the same kind of strategy, the same principles that should go into those decisions as, as well. And so we kind of like work with them at that sort of like root level and then work with them on how they then go about doing product development, you know, how, uh, you know, you open up that great question about MVPs, you know, maybe, maybe one company has a very different perspective about how much risk they're willing to take by putting a sort of like partially complete product out there. And another company has a completely different orientation. Well, if you as the founder can clarify what those principles are that you want the team to adhere to, 
then you have a much better opportunity to entrust them to make good decisions on your behalf. And that's what it really allows these companies to scale. And that's such an important part in the software space because these companies grow so rapidly, right? I mean, you know, when I was at Whoop, I joined and the product team was five people. 15 months later, it's 50 people, right? You know, this is the kind of scale that you see in these, in, in these kind of like software and technology companies. But there's some great lessons that I think are from there whether you're in software or you're working on other kind of like digital goods and services, or whether you're just working on something that's completely, um, you know, uh, a physical product, no matter what it is, once you kind of learn those principles of how you can scale your business as best as possible, when it comes to decision-making, I think that you're in a much better position. And there's a lot of great lessons that come from the world of product that you can apply. I love that. And I think it's, it's paramount in all businesses that the more they can get everybody on the same track, I mean, one of Henry Ford's greatest successes was being able to make sure that everybody had the same vision so that when they're problem solving, they're problem solving towards the same solution as right. opposed to kind of, well, we could go this way or we could go that way. It's like, this is this is where we're going. How <laughs> exactly. do we get there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got it. Nice. Love it. So what would you say is your favorite part of your business? So my favorite part of my business is, is the people that I get to work with. You know, I, I work with these people who, who really do often have great concepts for, uh, for the products that they're trying to create. They have great ideas for how they can make the world a better place through whether it's software that they're developing or any other kind of product or service that they're creating. Um, the best part for me is that I get to take that nugget of, of innovation, of genuine sort of customer love and help to transform that into a successful business by helping them to think about how they actually bring that to market, et cetera. Um, you know, how, how to convert that into a product roadmap for future development, you know, et cetera. So we work with those entrepreneurs on those kinds of things. And, and it's just a lot of fun to see it all kind of like actually happen, right? And then, you, you know, you download the next version of the app and it's got those things that you were talking about and you see it and you see the positive feedback that are coming from the customers, et cetera. There's really no, nothing as rewarding as that. And I love that I not, don't just get to do that for one company when I've been like a, you know, an operator myself in these businesses, but getting to see it across the dozens of companies that we work with at Prodify is really fantastic. Thanks. That was one other question that I was going to ask you is when you're working with companies, are you there for the preliminary kind of let's plan this thing out and kick off? Or are you there through to fruition? Most of the companies that we work with, we work with over the course of several years. Uh, so we'll do a whole variety of things and, and it transforms, you know, as the company continues to scale, the kinds of challenges that they had one day are just completely different than the kinds of challenges that they have the next day and, and so on. So, you know, in the earlier stages, the, the sort of like formative years uh, of a company when they're just kind of like getting started is really making sure that that minimum viable product is really solid and in the, and that, it's going to be the right set of things. So they don't get like, let's say, for example, a false negative. And that happens when you put a minimum viable product that's not actually even minimum or it's not really viable, right? Um, so, you know, who, who knows what's actually viable? There's this new term that's getting thrown around of minimum lovable product because if you don't create something that can at least be loved, then when you get critical feedback on it, you don't know how to interpret that. Is that evidence that we didn't invest enough? Or is that evidence that we're barking up the wrong tree in the first place, right? Like that's kind of this conundrum that I think a lot of founders run into. And so we try to help them sort through that by having the right kind of metrics uh, defined, the right kind of goals set for the team, the right kind of clarity of what target market they're going after. Because what happens if you get critical feedback 
from the kind of customer that you were never even trying to serve in the first place. Well, that's not evidence that your product is wrong. It's evidence that you went after the wrong group, right? And so, you know, you have to know how to interpret these kinds of, you know, uh, signals that you're getting from the market in these earlier stages. So we kind of work with them a lot on that. Later, that changes into how do you as the founder start to push decisions to other people because you're the CEO and you're the de facto product kind of like expert in the very beginning, but eventually you've got this company to run. And how do you kind of like, you know, push that to, to another group and have them make smart decisions about what should be built and worked on next and so on. And then you get into these, these uh, situations where you, you go from the minimum viable product to needing what's called product market fit, right? And product market fit is all about that place where you've found, you've dialed in. It's like you've dialed into who the target market is. You've dialed into what the customer value proposition is. You've dialed into the economics that are going to work for both you and your customer at the same time. And now, you know, you're seeing all these signals that your customer is, is loved, people or your, your product is loved. You've got people engaging with your product. You've got, you know, inbound interest in, in trying to, you know, find your product, et cetera. Though that's when you know you've really kind of like got this going. And then how do you sort of extend that through growth? How do you how do you scale your company up once you sort of like, you know, landed on that? to be as effective as possible. So those are kind of like this, those main kind of like stages that we find we're working with companies. And so the way in which we uh, we work with them might be very different. In the beginning, we might be working with the founder on defining some of these metrics and things like that up front. Next, we might be working with a product leader that gets hired uh, to try to help them sort of build out the operations of product management to be really effective. And in these later stages, we might say, okay, great. You've got another hundred million dollars of investment that just came in. How are you going to deploy that to maximum effect to try to see what the, what the return on investment is from your development efforts. And, you know, each of those is, is quite different, but we are very flexible and we've all at Prodify had experiences working at every one of those stages of those companies. So we're sort of accustomed to seeing these things and we can kind of like help our clients to see around corners in a lot of ways. I am totally fascinated, but I've been in a tech company and I have zero desire to create a software program going, uh, no, you guys can deal with this. This is awesome. So <laughs> when you're working with them, when it comes to testing the products, are you usually testing on the engineers and going, hey, use this as a, as a user would? Do you find a handful of users that are willing to test out in the real world before you bring it out? How do you recommend that? And is there different mm -hmm. times when you're going to do different things? So there are a huge number of different levels of testing that you're going to go through, right? So, you know, a, an engineer who's writing code is going to do with just unit testing on their code to make sure it actually does technically the things it's supposed to do. You get into integration testing where you kind of have all the engineers feed their stuff together and make sure that it, even though it works for each individual person, is it going to work when you kind of like create a system there? Um, then you get into the level of, uh, of showing it to users. And, you know, the, the smartest companies will have a group of users that are kind of like, friends of the company in some way, right? Like they're not going to, if they get a really bad experience using it, they're not going to go bad mouth the company on social media and stuff like that, right? Because it's like, it's, like it's like a handshake, right? I'm going to give you earliest access to these things, but what I'm hoping you're going to give me in return is helpful, constructive feedback so that I can improve it for your sake, right? And so a lot of these companies will have an alpha testing program a beta testing program. And then finally you get to this point where it's kind of like, you know, general availability or GA it's called. It's funny though, how some companies will, will define these at very different levels. So for example, I, I can't remember if this is still the case like as of this year, but uh, even like a one or two years ago, Google Maps 
is according to Google still in beta. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Like, like it's what? still, yeah. Like we all use it all the time and it like drives all businesses. And, yeah, exactly. Right. But it's because they had a certain set of criteria that they defined up front to say a product is ready. Like we think it's really solid when the following things are true. And, it, and, and based on whatever their internal definitions were, that kind of thing hadn't been true. And so this is kind of funny that, it, that it's, you know, the, these like really things that we would consider to be very late stage products are still from, from some other person's vantage point, like a completely different stage. So it kind of, it doesn't really matter what you call it, I guess, at the end of the day, what matters is that you go through these stage gates that you define and you say, we're not going to sort of like push it to the next level until we have confidence that we've cleared whatever hurdles we need to clear. And again, depending on the brand, depending on, you know, factors like that, that might be a very different set of hurdles for different companies. Like, you know, you wouldn't want to only be in beta if you were a small startup struggling for, for money, you'd want to make it available, you know, to everybody, you know, uh, possible, but you know, Apple might not be deploying some product that they've had, you know, in development for 15 years because it's better for them to wait until it's, you know, really ready for prime time, according to their definitions. So different well, even different the, the Google goggles, which I was very sad that they <laughs> did not make, I don't know what I heard. There's a lot of uh, trash talk down in Silicon yeah. Valley on them, but I thought they were rather epic. And I'm hearing rumored that they're kind of running that again. Hmm. Yeah, they, they very well may be. I don't know anything about that specifically, but it is interesting that, that the timing matters for this a lot. A lot of what we called it, even talked about before product market fit has to do with timing. I mean, I was, my, my earliest job in product management, I was in Silicon Valley. It was the year 1999, uh, date myself a little bit here. Um, and I was working 12. for a company. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I felt like I was 12. Um, and, and I was working for a company called uh, Webvan which is one of the great dot-com disaster stories of all time, if you want to read about it. Um, and it, it's taught in, in, in business school about what not to do. <laughs> but it was home grocery delivery, just like Instacart, just like Amazon Fresh, et cetera. Uh, but it was 1999 and almost nobody was online yet. We had massive warehouses. This was a multi-billion dollar company that was publicly traded back in 1999 that nobody like remembers but it was sort of like, it was mismanaged in a lot of ways and all kinds of bad things, but it was also just way too far ahead of his time. It was a great idea that wasn't in the right moment and people weren't accustomed to that. It's like, why would I do that when I need to go, you know, feel an orange in my hand, you know? And that's just the way that people were accustomed to shopping. Today, you're kind of like, oh great, like Instacart, you know, make, make it easy for me, keep it, keep it convenient. But the demand for those kinds of things in urban environments today is just a completely different thing than it was back in the day. And I think the same kind of thing is going to be true for Google Glass or anything else. So you get AI based, you know, systems with, you know, augmented reality layered on top where you can see information about people and get recommendations for the kinds of things to talk about and stuff like that. I mean, maybe that's incredibly valuable at a at the right moment. But if it's too premature, people are going to be like, hey, weirdo with the glasses, like, why don't you take those things off and like actually talk to me, right? Just a completely <laughs> different orientation. Yeah, I've had many a haircut that was five years before his time. And then all of a sudden everybody has it. was like, see, you're cool before it was cool. That's, that's right. That makes cool. you not cool. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. So give us an example of a Cinderella story of one of your clients. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll choose one um, that's a company called Contactually. Uh, they had a, a, a nice exit, uh, but in an unexpected way. 
So, um, so they were a startup that was working on, on software and technology. I think everybody who's listening will appreciate what they were trying to solve, which was, you know, I just sort of stay in touch with various people in my network. You know, I'm trying to constantly do networking, I'm, you know, chatting with different people, et cetera. And it was basically a customer relationship management tool for the masses. It wasn't Salesforce or something really robust that would take, you know, months to deploy and things like that. It was something you could kind of like, you know, turn on right away. And they were trying to go after these small to medium businesses. So think like real estate agents or dentists, you know, even for that matter, right? Who would use this kind of tool or even just individuals like solopreneurs and things like that who need to stay in touch with others. So they had this wide variety of all these different kinds of um, uh, customers that they were serving and they were all paying like a really kind of like nominal fee to be able to use the product. And they started to realize that more and more real estate agents were starting to use this because it really just kind of matched. That's where they had the product market fit. And so they had this whole wide variety of other kinds of people who are using the product. And they had this really difficult conundrum because when they're designing the product, they let's even think about the language that, that's in the app. Do you use language like contact, connection, entity, you know, these that's like perfect. abstract terms. Asian. Yeah, you know, things like that. Yeah, exactly, yeah. right? But if you're a real estate agent, you're like, I got a buyers. <laughs> I got, you know, people who bought former homes. I got houses. I got, you know... I want the terms that make sense to me in my context, but, but like a dentist doesn't have buyers and sellers, they have patients, they have, you know, so, and, and so what was happening is they're, they're stuck and a lot of companies in software get stuck on this where they want to make something as general purpose because they want to have it have wide applicability, but the wider that they, that they have their aperture, then the less relevant it seems for each individual that they're trying to serve. So they have this really like difficult challenge, which is, do we continue to take that approach or do we try to like double down on this one area? And so working with them and working with the founding team and the head of product and things like that, uh, we helped them to understand the benefits that would come if they were to narrow in and sort of like zero in on this real estate market. It was a difficult decision and the company ultimately made the decision to, to make that choice. And, and they decided to redesign the product specifically for realtors and everybody else was like pissed off they didn't want to use it anymore you know they told their friends to stop using it etc but they nailed it with the real estate market and because they did that they were able to design it in such a way that they kind of like got 10x the engagement from this group that was probably representing about 50 percent of their customer base before so they got far better growth because of that and they became a an attractive acquisition for another company called Compass that was in the real estate space that was looking to digitize some of their offerings as well. So it was kind of like the, the more, uh, the better product market fit you can get, even if it's in a smaller market, that often is the right kind of thing to do. And I think it was a great sort of like Cinderella story because you have all these other CRM, you know, companies that are out there. These guys kind of came on, they, they did something unique. They zeroed in on exactly what they needed to do. They were willing to make the sacrifices that they needed. And they ultimately had a really good exit as a result of it. So kudos to them for making some really good decisions on that front. Nice, I love it. So what are some of the problems or stumbling blocks that company owners are having right now as they're listening to this and going, oh my God, Ben, you need to come and help me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I think that the, the the way that some of the problems manifest is you're you're doing all the you're trying all these things to grow your business and it's not working. So, you know, it's kind of like we said with with the farming analogy, right? You're you're trying to to reap better and better and better, and you you can only get so far before you sort of realize, hey, wait, this is not about me, sort of like uh, 
finding the next piece of low-hanging fruit. Like eventually there is no more low-hanging fruit, but the best way to find more low-hanging fruit is to just kind of like grow more trees, right? And if you could improve the value proposition of your product to your to your cu customers, if you could have it be more resonant, like the contactually example, to make it be more resonant with a particular niche, if you could segment your product so that it worked differently for different personas that you were trying to kind of like, you know, build for, et cetera, then those are the areas in which you would be able to see the bang for buck down the road. So I think that's one is when you're sort of like trying all these things to kind of like grow your business, you're not seeing those things that are actually like effective. A lot of times you really need to kind of like look elsewhere and kind of like take a step back. And a lot of times it's really orienting yourself around product. Um, in particular, I think for software companies, when they're doing a bunch of like, it seems like they're just kind of like launching feature after feature after feature. And it kind of seems like they're spinning your wheels. You know, it's like you get feedback from a customer saying, if I only had this feature, I'd stay, I'd continue using your product. So you think, okay, well, then I'll go build that feature. And then customers like that will continue to use it. And then as soon as you do, they're like, well, actually I need this feature next. And I need this feature. And then you kind of get into this dysfunction that we call the feature factory. And there's a sort of like a whole variety of dysfunctions that are out there um, that I wrote about actually in the book that I, that I published and, and co-authored um, with my business partner called Build What Matters. And we sort of detail these 10 dysfunctions that companies kind of like run into. The feature factory is one of them. Other ones is like um, the negotiating table we refer to it as. And, and that's one where um, you, uh, in, in product management, you end up as you're trying to prioritize the next thing to go build rather than figure out the right thing that it is for the customer, you're just listening to all the internal stakeholders and you're just trying to make like the, the most angry person, the least unhappy, you know, to some extent. And that's not the right way to decide what to go build next. But sometimes you find yourself in that zone and you're like, gosh, how do we get there? Well, it's usually an artifact of not having a really good product strategy. That's why everyone's kind of jumping in with their opinions as opposed to saying, hey, I understand what we're doing. We're on the same page. This is what we're moving towards. I've got responsible for the responsibility for hitting these numbers now and product. You have responsibility for making a product that will allow me to sign up for even higher numbers down the road. And that's kind of like the place that you really want to be able to get where you have, everybody's kind of got their, their position on the field. They're playing together as a team. Uh, and sometimes it really doesn't feel that way. And when you see it, that, that happening, it's usually an indication that something's missing on the product front. I, I love that. Well, and so many, uh, Software companies I know have that feeling of <laughs> we make the most angry person the least angry. That's totally. a terrible way to run your business. It is awful feeling. And I don't think anything can zap your enthusiasm about your software fast enough when it comes to that. So <laughs> yeah, if you're not experiencing sappy. that, you don't want to experience that. So get a hold of Ben. So Ben, I know our listeners are going to want more from you. How did they start that journey with you? Yeah, absolutely. The first thing is, is come find us on our, our website. Uh, it's Prodify, P-R-O-D-I-F-Y. Dot group. Uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn. It's very easy. My handle is just Ben Foster uh, on LinkedIn. So I, I was back at, we were talking about how, you know, back in the early days, uh, I was, I was in technology back when I was 12. <laughs> uh, You're the so first one, one to get the, there. <laughs> I was the first one to get the Ben Foster name, you know? So, um, so anyway, I, uh, you know, you can find me on LinkedIn. I always love to connect with people there and just have a conversation. You know, I, I always just love to hear stories about people's own experience, you know, building their companies, trying to be successful, reach out, see if we can just, you know, chat for a little bit and, and see if I can help you right then. And if I can, great. And, you know, every client that I've ever had, for the most part, really kind of came through those conversations. It wasn't, you know, some sort of sales job or anything like that. It was just having conversations as an advisor for them. And, you know, my, my perspective has always been, um, you don't hire an advisor because 
you have an open rec for an advisor. You hire an advisor because you're already getting great advice from that person. You want to kind of like lock that in. And so we're always happy to take the the time to kind of like invest with our uh, companies that we end up having a chance to talk to. And we just love learning along the way and sharing everything that we know along the way as well. Well, we will, of course, have all of your links in the show notes. So peeps, just scroll down, click on the links, open them up in new browsers, because of course we're not done yet. So I get to ask you, at what point in life did you know that you were especially kind of crazy enough to think that you could become an entrepreneur? <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny. It, 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 I have to admit it happened accidentally. So my story is I was, uh, I was uh, you know, a, a technology executive running product at a company. The company went public. Um, I decided to leave after that uh, and wanted to kind of get back into the startup world. I wasn't ready to go do another full-time job. I kind of like had enough to, to you know, take some time off for a little bit. But in tech, you know, to your point earlier, you can't just take time off because the world's changing so fast. You you have to be immersed in it if you want to stay relevant. And so I thought, hey, the right way to do this would be if I just took some advisory kind of like roles with different companies. And maybe I work a few hours here and a few hours there and I'll be a mentor to a few different people and things like that. And I just thought I was going to do that to kind of like pass the time. And 10 years later, I'm still doing the same kind of thing. We've got a business kind of like built out of it. Uh, and it's because, you know, I, th I think the, the work that we were doing with companies was really well appreciated. We got to know the investors of those companies. They started to connect us to other portfolio companies, um, you know, that they were invested in as well. They said, hey, that's great for that one company. Why don't you work with all of our companies? And so we've kind of like just, just built a business by doing the stuff that we love, doing it well, and getting the kind of like word of mouth referrals that we've been looking for. So um, that's how I became an entrepreneur. It wasn't any sort of like intent, but maybe there's a little bit of a lesson to that, right? Which is if you're doing the thing that you love and you're, and you're dedicated to it and you do it well, you know, good things are going to happen. Awesome. You have been absolutely awesome. Any last words for our peeps? Hey, uh, you know, just uh, keep up the good fight as you're trying to grow your business. Always remember what your business was based upon, which is the value that you deliver to your customers. The better a job you do with that, the more successful your business is going to be. Always keep that in mind. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And I know how valuable it is. All right. Hey, I really appreciate you uh, hosting me on this wonderful conversation. Awesome. Peeps, this is Michelle Nedelec. Thank you for being here with us today. Be sure to subscribe to the show, share it with your friends. We love helping entrepreneurs grow. Are you running a business over seven figures, but still struggling with technology headaches? Pay attention. You do not want to miss this offer. This podcast episode is brought to you by Awareness Strategies, who is offering a custom-built digital adoption roadmap for anyone running a business over seven figures who's wanting to grow their business in the next five years. And it's not just a roadmap. They offer full implementation as well. If that scares the out of you, check out awarenessstrategies.com forward slash roadmap for more details today. The link's in the show's notes. Don't regret not doing this. Do it now. That's awarenessstrategies.com slash roadmap.